Luke 20, verse 9, and I'll read down through verse 19. This is God's word. Let us give it our reverent attention. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written, The stone which the builders rejected, This became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, But on whomever it falls, It will scatter him like dust. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Now, if you'll turn back in your Bible to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, you will see where some of this imagery that Jesus uses comes from. The imagery of God's people as a vineyard is nothing new with Jesus and his teaching. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. The prophet says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce Worthless ones. So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. 
I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing as we consider this chapter in the Gospel of Luke. The Lord, his teaching to those who met with him, who heard him gladly in the temple, we ask that you would give us insight as to what happened then and its application to us today. For we desire to serve you with our whole heart and to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Underpinning the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is the plain and simple fact that as the creator of all things in the beginning, God is also, for that very reason, the rightful owner and Lord of all things. His sovereign claim to lordship over us is both comprehensive and absolute. What I'm saying, beloved, is that all things are his. His alone. All things in heaven, all things on earth, all things under the earth. I am his, you are his, we are his. They out there are his. The federal government, the Taliban, the North Koreans, and everything else. Like it or not, they are his. He has a claim on them. This is the Bible's plain teaching, beginning with its very first sentence. But let a couple familiar psalms drive this rightful ownership as Lord home to us. Psalm 24 flatly states this in the broadest, most universal terms possible. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it, for, that is because, it's his because, he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So the world is his because he made it. He hasn't given it away. And Psalm 100 summons not only the nation of Israel, summons not only the church, summons all the earth to shout joyfully to the Lord and to render a few other significant acts of worship besides. 
among them is this. Psalm 100 says, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us. And his we are. God's ownership of everything there is is the starting point, really, of the gospel. Partly, this is true, partly because it gives us the boundary lines of his present redemptive work in Christ. We speak of foreign missions, but you know what? There is no place that is foreign to God. Those lands that we send missionaries to aren't foreign to him. And his missionary ambassadors who travel there carrying the gospel, they never leave the rightful boundaries and jurisdiction of their own king. Wherever missionaries go, they belong there. Now, we Calvinists love the biblical doctrine of election. The Lord graciously knows and calls and receives that specially privileged subset of the human race toward whom he extends his sovereign saving mercy. And that's not everyone. It's not everyone. And yet we offer this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ freely. We offer it indiscriminately. We'll preach the gospel to anyone who will hear. Because his field of redemptive interest, God's field of redemptive interest, is vastly more expansive than many of us tend to think. It's vastly more expansive and outward-looking, certainly, than the Jews of the early first century tended to think. That's why Jesus on one occasion would bother to talk with a Samaritan woman sitting by a well. It's because God providentially placed her within the walls of his vineyard. Fruit for the kingdom of God might be gathered even from her life, once redeemed by grace to the praise and glory of God. Fruit might be found here. Now, Isaiah 5, verse 7 identifies the house of Israel as the Lord's vineyard. And Israel was indeed the crown jewel of the estate. Israel was the reddest of God's red grapes planted there, the most privileged of nations. But Israel's mission included the expansion of that estate, that kingdom, didn't it? Her mission included the cultivation and improvement of the wild grapes that lay beyond the wall of Israel. I'm speaking of the surrounding nations, the Gentiles. Because not just one tiny nation, but all the world is his vineyard. The earth is the Lord and its fullness. That's why, for instance... Centuries before, God sent Jonah the prophet. Where did he send Jonah the prophet? 
outside Israel to the heathen city, the great heathen city of Nineveh. He's reaching out in his grace beyond the vineyard wall. Because the sparks that were flying from this bright kindling of God's grace in Israel, they were those sparks were always intended to fly off into neighboring fields and start fires there, the fire of the gospel. That's why God providentially, even in Old Testament times, God providentially brought a Syrian military man by the name of Naaman to Israel for the healing of his leprosy. And going back even farther, it's why God gave us the table of nations as far back as Genesis chapter 10. It's all intended to remind God's covenant people of the length and the breadth and the depth and the importance of our mission to bring the good news of God's redemption to all the nations of the earth. The world is God's vineyard and Israel the appointed vine dresser. Israel is the tenant farmer. Israel is the sharecropper, if you will. She lives within this vineyard for the express purpose of cultivating all the nations of the earth for God. Israel lived among the nations to train them in the righteousness of God's holy law by biblical precept and national example, improving them. Improving the stock of lost humanity by demonstrating as a living example to the nations the kingdom and the power and the glory of God. That was the intent. And yet among Jewish thinkers at the time we're studying, the early first century, public discourse centered, for the most part, on when and how the Messiah, when he comes, is going to deliver Israel from her Roman overlords. See the difference in perspective. But that's how Judea, by and large, understood the role and function of the coming son of David because her most prominent national interest, as she saw it, as Israel saw it, was self-interest. Political self-determination. That's what she was after when Jesus came into the world. The Jews, by and large, had very little interest in becoming the God-appointed salt of the earth and light of the world. Little interest in showing the world the kingdom and the power and the glory of God. So her concept of the Messiah and his work tended to be limited to the political. That's what interested her. It's all about making Israel great again. Which is fine. There's nothing wrong with some, uh, some, a healthy dose of patriotism. That's fine. Except that's as far as the interests of these chief priests, scribes, and leading men of Israel went. That's as far as they were concerned. Just driving out the Romans. 
cultivating and actually bearing spiritual fruit for God hardly seemed to register with them. And it's a persistent problem down through the ages, isn't it? This narrowing of our life focus, shrinking of our hearts, commitment of our time and talents and treasure to the enrichment and advancement, not of God's kingdom, but of self. Self Self-interest. We sometimes hear that uh, mental and spiritual bottleneck called parochialism. Parochialism, if it ever sees God working at all, typically sees that work happening within a very tight, small vineyard. And often it is with very small results. Because the focus is on a small group of very like-minded people. Just us, or sometimes just me. It's just God and me. Me and God. People who are afflicted with this narrow, introverted view of God's glorious kingdom tend to see relational walls where... God, the landowner, never built or intended walls to be. (laughs) Parables, like the one before us here in Luke chapter 20, parables like this remind us not only of the worldwide expansiveness of God's vineyard and Israel's covenant arrangement with the landowner as vine dresser among the nations. More specifically, In this parable, Jesus reminds the Jewish leaders of their failures. He's speaking to the people at large there in verse 9. But the scribes and the chief priests among them understood that he spoke this parable against them. Verse 19. Jesus spoke of their failure as leaders, to lead. Their failure to teach the people God's law, substituting for God's law their own rabbinical traditions. And especially, as we read through it, you'll remember this, especially he charges them with failure to heed the repeated corrections brought by God's prophets down through history. All the way down through history to and including John the Baptist in their own generation. The parables, an indictment of Israel's leaders for their failure to bear spiritual fruit of God for God themselves, and as spiritual leaders to cultivate that fruit in the lives of others, which is their responsibility as teachers. But the fact is that God the landowner leased to Israel that good land with a purpose. In his absence, until he comes, until God comes to collect his due from his vineyard, let these tenant farmers work the land. 
Let them tend the vines. Let them enrich the soil. Let them even go so far as to expand the walls of the estate to encompass more and more of the nations round about. Let's do all things for the glory of God. Because at the appointed time, the Lord of this vineyard is going to come looking for his share of the vintage. And you know what? Even as Jesus speaks, the day hastens on when these same tenant farmers, these very chief priests and scribes and the leading men of Israel, they are going to cast out of the vineyard and kill not just another of God's servants, the prophets, but his own beloved son. And that day was no longer centuries or years or months or weeks away. You know when that's going to happen? It's going to happen this coming Friday. We're reading here the events of the final week before the crucifixion and death of that beloved son. The culmination of the parable comes in the form of a pointed question. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know, rhetorically, didactically, and morally, there really couldn't be a more fitting climax to the story that he's just laid out for us. Because the question that he asks draws us into the story. It involves us. He asks the question, what do you think this long-suffering owner of the vineyard will do to these wicked sharecroppers whose habitual mistreatment of his faithful slaves culminates with the murder, the cold-blooded murder of his beloved son? What do you think? What will the Lord of the vineyard do? I'll tell you, it's here in verse 16. He will come. Now, he had not yet come, had he? He'd been sending ambassadors. He'd been sending servants, the prophets. He'd been sending, eventually, his own beloved son. Here's what he'll do. He will come and destroy those vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. That's what he'll do. And this resonates with us, doesn't it? This answer? Men and women of tender, sympathetic heart, men and women who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we can scarcely help but answer, Amen, so be it. May we all live to see the day when the blood of the innocent is avenged and justice is done. So it's rather striking, I think, to see that this wasn't the reaction of the people at all. Verse 16. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. 
May we never live to see such divine vengeance, such clearly biblical justice executed in our land. Now, it may be true that we've been none too kind to the prophets that God sent us through the years. It may be true that each one of them, right down to John the Baptist of recent memory, suffered, even died only for the high crime of speaking the truth. but destroy the nation? To give the land of our inheritance to others? And what about the ancient covenant God made with us? Isn't, is that covenant just to be scrapped? Or is it to be superseded by another? A new one, maybe? He said, may it never be. And yet it would be. And these very things Jesus speaks, things surpassing human imagination and human dread, these very things would actually come to pass within the lifetime of many of those men and women who made up the audience, Jesus' audience that day. They would live to see their nation destroyed and the vineyard given to others. And yet in the wonderful providence of God, a wonderful thing would soon be growing out of the fallen, dead, rotting stump of Israel. In fact, that wonderful thing had already been planted it was already germinating, it was already growing in the rich compost of the dying nation. It was indeed a new covenant that God would very soon be making with his people. And it would be a covenant sealed not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with that of his own beloved son who was slain for sinners. It would be a fresh covenant written not on tablets of stone but on the tablets of the human heart. And one of those badly abused prophets that Jesus made reference to, one of those badly abused prophets by the name of Jeremiah wrote of that new covenant. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. And their sin I will remember no more. A new covenant. The self-appointed builders of Israel, so the movers and shakers of that day styled themselves, chief priests, scribes, and so forth, they considered and called themselves the builders. 
the builders of Israel imagined for themselves a free and independent national future that didn't include the saving person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. For all the stuff and nonsense that they did build into their plans, they rejected him. The Lord Jesus, as yet another of those prophets, tells us the Lord Jesus was despised and forsaken of men. And one like one from whom men hide their face. And yet God in his wisdom made foolish the wisdom of Israel and the wisdom of the world at large. Paul says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know him. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In this way, Paul spelled out the matter of Jesus' atoning death to the Corinthians. But the Lord Jesus Christ was even more to the point when he explains the absolute necessity of his own atoning death to the imminent raising up of a new temple, the church of the New Testament. He said, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for his active obedience to your law, that he might be an unblemished Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. We thank you for his passive obedience at the cross. We thank you for the teaching that he left to prepare us to understand all that he had done. Grant your blessing, we pray, upon your church on account of his person and work. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.